Mac Power Users, episode 580, 20 years of Mac OS X. Hello, and welcome back to Mac Power Users. My name is Stephen Hackett, and I am joined as always by my friend and yours, Mr. David Sparks. Hey, Stephen. How are you today? I'm good. We're going to talk about the Mac and its history. We should probably tell people in advance how long this Google Doc is. <laughs> it's going to be a fun ride today. I feel like this is like the episode for Steven. This is this is your episode 100%. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but it's actually a lot of fun talking about this stuff. I, I guess we should start by explaining why we're talking about Mac OS X today. Yeah, so on March 24th, 2001, Apple released Mac OS 10.0 to the public. There were some betas, including a public beta before that. And, you know, we wanted to mark the 20th anniversary uh, of that. And it's an amazing run. And we both think Mac OS, as it's now called, has a long life ahead of it. But it seemed like a nice time to stop and look back and at how far the Mac has come in two decades. Yeah. And just, I mean, how much this operating system is responsible for Apple's success. I mean, I was thinking about this over the weekend as we were prepping for the show. It's like, uh, in my head, you would think like, well, the iMac is what saved Apple, you know, when they came out with the cool, colorful iMac. But really, everything they have done in these 20 years started with Mac OS X, even the iPhone. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the Apple Watch has its roots in uh, in this, uh, this is yeah. where, and it'll be the only time I do it. So forgive me. Uh, I'm going to plug a book that I wrote. Uh, it, it published like four years ago now called Aqua and Bondi. It's about the, basically what you just mentioned, the iMac and OS 10 and how those came about together to really save Apple. Uh, it's on the, uh, Apple bookstore and, um, we're going to talk a lot about what's in this book today. In fact, I actually pulled up my PDF of it to to refresh my memory on some of it. But if you like what we're going to talk about today, uh, maybe go check that out. Uh, I think you would enjoy it. Yeah, I mean, honestly, if you if you like your Mac and your Apple gear, understanding the history a little bit is, is kind of cool. That's why we're covering it today, and, and that's why you should probably read Stephen's book. And <laughs> Lord knows I plug my stuff enough, Stephen. Don't feel bad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'm not as prolific as you are with the book, so I guess this is my this is my shot. All right, it's it's a great book. I would Thanks. highly recommend it. I bought it before you and I were as good of friends as we are now. I'm like, oh, I just want to read this guy's book. Yeah, it, it, I thought. <laughs> I know you've talked about this with your stuff, but I thought I could probably get this done in like a month, and it took almost a year <laughs> to oh, do yeah. it. That, that, that's the usual. Yeah, twelve to one. That's about right. Yeah, uh, yeah. So it was it was a lot of fun. Um, also today on more power users, you know, the ad-free longer version of the show, we're going to talk about our first experiences, our first exposure to Mac OS 10. You and I had came from very different places where you've been using the Mac a long time, and I kind of came to this sort of mid-transition between classic Mac OS and OS 10, so we're going to talk about that for members at the end of the show. I'm looking forward to that a lot. Yeah, me too. Me too. So, uh, where do we start this journey? We're going to start the dawn of time. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was thinking, well, let's, let's start with where Apple was, Yeah, you know, at the beginning where, and it really wasn't a very good place. 
Oh, it, it wasn't. Um, initially, the Mac obviously was a game changer in 1984. It popularized things like the graphic user interface and a thing like the mouse. In fact, a lot of the ads from the early days of the Macintosh were, this is how a mouse works. But during that era of the 80s, Apple really didn't have the idea that the software was separate from the hardware. It was, this is the Macintosh, and this is the software. The software didn't have its own brand, if you will. There was the Finder, and there was like the system folder and that sort of stuff. Uh, But eventually, Apple would sort of come around to giving this thing a name. And we would get like things like System Software 5, System 6, uh, System 7. And it became more of a marketing and branding deal as opposed to before, like when you got the Mac Plus, it just ran a slightly newer version of the Macintosh experience than the 128 had. This was different from how other computer companies did it. Uh, a lot of, in fact, there was a lot of stuff in the 80s. It was about the OS that you that you ran, right? I'm running CPM or DOS or whatever, But Apple, and I think primarily Steve Jobs, viewed the Mac as it is just this one thing, and talking about the software and hardware separately didn't make a lot of sense to Apple in that time. Yeah, I mean, I think he was always a fan of kind of the toaster approach to technology, and like, this is what you get. You pull it out of the box, and it works, and we don't need to focus on any particular component as much as we focus on how the fact that it all works together. And this is kind of beyond the scope of today's show, but... Andy Hertzfeld did this great series on the internet. I'll have to go ahead and go and find it. I read this stuff years ago where he talked about kind of the chronicles of them putting together the operating system for the first Mac. And just like the Mac OS 10 group, the, you know, the original Mac system one, I guess, or the original Mac operating system really was revolutionary. I mean, they solved a bunch of problems that nobody else could get around you know, everybody likes to make fun of Apple and say, yeah, Xerox Park already had the mouse and Windows and all this stuff. But nobody, even Apple with their Lisa initiative, were able to get it in a user-friendly working m- method. And yeah. um, and the people at Microsoft were flummoxed when they saw uh, the original Macintosh with almost no RAM moving Windows around the screen. I mean, it, it really was quite an effort by that original team. But, you know, it just kind of... St- stayed there you know they really didn't kind of flow with the times yeah that that's right uh that website by the way uh having the notes is folklore.org yes that's it basically anything you want to read about the early mac is there it's it's a great resource uh that's one of those websites that if the day comes where it needs somebody to keep hosting it i will just pay to keep hosting it myself like that the site needs to stay up forever um so yeah so let's let's jump forward in time uh you know 10 12 years after the original mac System 6, System 7. It became Mac OS as the name with 7.6 in 1997. Why that version? I don't know. The, the Apple in the 90s was a real mystery. Um, but like you said, they, they had basically let it sort of wither on the vine. You know, Mac OS had come from this place of swapping floppies around. They did add things like hard drive support, networking, the ability to run more more than one app at a time, which was originally a hack called MultiFinder, and they brought that into the system. But they had just bolted all this stuff on, and the core wasn't really improved very much, right? It's like 
I was trying to think about an analogy, right? It's like if you are adding onto your house, but you know, you didn't deal with like structural issues in the original building, right? Like you're sort of just adding weight and adding structure to something that really shouldn't be able to support it. And that's kind of where Mac OS got uh, in the nineties. Yeah. It's like a house with a foundation for one story, but they had a three story house on top of that <laughs> yeah. foundation. Yeah, absolutely. I vividly remember my college bookstore, those system six posters when system six came out, you know, because that's where we'd all the nerds, the Mac nerds would go hang out in the bookstore, the little Mac section. But it did feel like, um, you know, when Mac was so revolutionary when it came out, I mean, the reason they did ads about the mouse is because everybody was sitting at an IBM PC with a command line or even, you know, an Apple II with a command line or whatever. And it was like such a game changer. But a lot of computer hardware, as it got faster, was getting additional support, like, you know, multi, you know, multi, the, the ability to run multiple apps at a single time, which was supported much better than the Mac. And the Mac felt creaky at the time. I, I, mean, I used them and it definitely needed something that it didn't yeah. have. And there were real technical reasons for that creaky feeling. I mean, anyone who used the classic Mac OS will remember uh, an application crashing and you needing to restart your whole computer, right? No, you used to, you used to have to run utilities to babysit your RAM. Yeah. It was like... It was like the Starship Enterprise, you know, like you had to like figure out how much power you're going to put into your shields and your thrusters and your your lasers because you had to do that with your on an app basis on the Mac or you would an app could, you know, run unchecked could literally crash the system. That's right. And the the reason for that was really uh twofold. Uh, the real reason for the crashiness and the having to babysit everything was a lack of protected memory. So these things, these two things are very technical. I did my best. Uh, in fact, I ripped these out of my book because I, I talked to a bunch of people trying to explain these as simply as possible. But in the classic Mac OS, say you're running Photoshop and Photoshop has its chunk of RAM, its chunk of memory that it's using. Any other processor application could go into that memory pool and read and write from it and tinker with it. And so... In this world, if an application crashes, it can't help but take down the rest of the system because that RAM is all shared between everybody and it's not protected. That is a security issue, of course. You don't want applications snooping on each other, but it, it also led to that instability that so many people uh, experience so often. And uh, the second thing is preemptive multitasking. And again, simplifying this. Preemptive multitasking means that an operating system can run multiple applications and multiple services and ensure that they all have access to the CPU. Basically, the system is the traffic cop, right? So Mac OS is in charge of what all the applications are doing as far as computer resources. Uh, without this, again, you run into instability and you run into things blocking each other. For instance, in classic Mac OS, clicking a menu in the menu bar, basically the rest of the machine would stop until you let go of your mouse because the computer's whole attention is now watching what is David going to do with this menu? And it can't it can't do enough to keep everything else everything else running. And this made the Mac feel slower than it needed to, and again, instability and not being uh very secure. And 
by the 90s, this stuff was around um, and Apple just didn't have it. Yeah. The thing that felt weird at the time, kind of looking back, and I'm thinking now like late late 80s to early 90s was the the RAM problem was a constant thing. Like your computer would crash if you weren't careful. And I hated that. And the, the multitasking was great. And I, none of us were really using it that we're using Mac. So we saw that it was out there, but we really just didn't have it. So I don't think we missed it as much. The, the third thing you mentioned was security. And I can tell you having been there, none of us thought anything about security. Nobody cared. You know, well, I mean, it's a lot of these computers weren't on the internet and exactly. And the Mac was basically a single user machine. So wasn't that big of a deal. Yeah. And it's not for trying. So by the time System 7 comes around, Apple had tried twice to build an OS replacement. One was called Pink, which is mostly internal. The other one was uh, Taligent, which they worked with some partners on. And those are like stories for another time. But they just didn't have talent, focus, and resources to make that happen. And so both of those projects died off without any really anything to show for it. Now, where does Copeland fit in? Because I remember talk of Copeland around the same time. Yeah, so so Copeland was Apple's third try to build a, a modern operating system. Uh, this launched in 1994, and the goal was to ship it as, quote, System 8 or Mac OS 8 in 1996. Uh, the to-do list was really long for Copeland. It needed to support all classic Mac applications it needed to be all native for the PowerPC, Apple's new hardware platform. It was going to have an updated user interface. It was going to support OpenDoc, which again is a story for a different time, but OpenDoc is a real sad story where Apple basically said, uh, instead of applications, let's just have content everywhere. It's a very strange idea. And then it was going to have protected memory and preemptive multitasking. Apple knew this was a problem. It's not that their their head was in the sand, but... Copeland was way too ambitious, again, given Apple's resources at the time. And I've talked to people who worked on Copeland, and the company just didn't have what it needed to pull this off in in a bunch of different ways. And rather unsurprisingly, 1996 comes and goes, and uh, Gil Emilio, the CEO at the time, says, hey, look, instead of one big OS upgrade, uh, we're going to roll these features out one by one over the course of several updates to Mac OS. Basically, as things are ready, we're going to put them into the release. Uh, some features like the interface Platinum, if you've run Mac OS or Mac OS, if you've run Mac OS 8 or Mac OS 9, you've seen Platinum uh, and better power PC support, those rolled out. But that was about it. You know, Mac OS 8, when it finally came about, really was just a shell of what Copeland was supposed to be. You know, and that was a watershed moment for me, I guess, because when that announcement came down that, you know, this was going to be piecemeal and having been dealing at that point, I'd been a lawyer for three years and was, you know, trying to do legal work on a Mac and running into so many problems with compatibility and the whole firm was on windows and, They said, hey, you know, we're going to get this, but it's going to, you know, one feature at a time. I was thinking this is going to be like five years of misery. And that's when I started learning how to use a PC. Yeah. I think a lot of people abandoned ship at that point. I mean. I kept my Mac, but I did a lot of work on the PC at that point. 
Well, Apple had, had talked a big game about Copeland for a long time, and it just it just all fell apart. And you know, at this point, okay, you've got three dead attempts. I think Apple knew that it would need to go, you know, what they call in the business world, to an outside hire. They needed to go find an operating system that they could bring in, add some sort of Mac support to it, and that be their new OS. I think they knew that they were out of time. The stock market told them they were out of time. You know, this is all in the era of Apple having dwindling sales and dwindling cash on hand. You know, Windows 95 was not very kind to the Mac, right? A lot of people look at Windows 95. I don't think I don't think Mac users saw it at the time, but I think now looking back, it's clear that Windows 95 delivered a real hard blow to the Mac. Not that it had all the stuff done perfectly, but it was so much better than previous versions of Windows that it really showed that Microsoft was serious about making an operating system with a GUI that was pretty good. Yeah, well, it was good enough. Good enough. I think it would be. And I mean, there are so many things about the Mac that were better, but the underlying problems with the Mac, and, and again, I, I'll i stop saying this, but the RAM management problem used to drive me crazy. And it was a problem. And at the time, if you put it in context, Windows is on the rise. You know, they've they've figured out how to move Windows. I mean, the first couple of versions of Windows was terrible. And um the um but they're starting to figure it out while at the same time Apple can't seem to get its act together about upgrading the operating system. And I'll tell you at the time, I didn't know if I had to buy a computer at the time, I didn't know what I would have done. I used the the PCs at work and I had my Mac. Yeah. But if somebody told me you got to buy a computer, I'm not sure I would have given money to Apple at the time because I just wasn't sure they were going to be around in a few years. Yeah. And, and 95 had that, those like core underlying things. Not that it was perfect. It definitely wasn't, but it was technically more advanced than the Mac OS at this point. And that was a big, <laughs> that was a big deal. Um, even for people who liked the Mac, I think it was, it was the, the writing was on the wall that something had to give. And so Apple went out shopping. Uh, They looked at four different contenders uh, of software to to either buy or license. Uh, The first one was Sun Microsystems, their Solaris software. This was uh, basically rejected pretty quickly. And this is where we talk about Ellen Hancock, uh, a name that is not well known in Apple history, but I think should be. So she was the CTO who came in with Emilio. She's the one who said, look, Copeland is never going to ship if we have to wait for it all. Let's start rolling it out as things are ready. And uh, she was real influential in the way that this went, talking Apple into this. Now, she got um, shown the door by you-know-who when he comes back in a little while, but she helped this along. I think she deserves credit for that. But they ruled out Sun Microsystem Solaris. Its, Its hardware requirements were just too high. They get this. They even met with Bill Gates about licensing the NT kernel, to like put NT underneath macOS. That basically went nowhere fast for a bunch of reasons you may imagine. Yeah. Um, yes. I would have loved to have seen that meeting, though. I wish there was like a video of that meeting. Oh, yeah. It would have been incredible. Uh, and, you know, Bill Gates, pretty ruthless guy. So maybe, you know, he probably would take an apple for a ride. Yeah, that was during his ruthless stage. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, they also looked at B. Uh, B is a fascinating company. It's B-E, B Computer Company. 
I'll put a link in the show notes. Episode six of Flashback uh, here on Relay FM. Quinn Nelson and I talk about B Computer for like an hour and a half. Very interesting company. Uh, it was run by no none other than John Louis Gasset, who was a former Apple executive. He had been he'd left Apple. He built this company. They built an OS on top of the PowerPC architecture that Apple was using. But the B box, as they called their computer, was miles better than most Macs at the time. And BOS had some really cool stuff with multimedia. Uh, but they wanted $300 million from Apple to buy them out. And B was not successful. Like they, they weren't making a lot of money. Uh, and Apple basically said, uh, thanks, but no thanks. That's, that's beyond our budget. Yeah. John Louis Gasset has this great blog. I think it's called Monday note. Yes. Um, we'll, we'll put a link in the show notes. I mean, he was there at Apple kind of at the beginning. He was the head of sales, I think starting in France, but then eventually all of Europe, he really kind of knows a lot about the the history of Apple, and he brings context to that with the future. It's one of my favorite blogs to read. It's fantastic. It is absolutely fantastic. But then the B, because I, I remember the B operating system was really nice, and I was personally hoping that that's where Apple would go. I mean, this was not a, um, this isn't like Windows NT kernel. This was something that could have worked. Yeah, and because it was PowerPC native, Probably not that much work to even get it working, but uh, but Apple thought the price tag was too high. So it, within Silicon Valley, the B Apple thing was pretty well known. I get the sense of that in reading material from the time that people knew this had gone sideways, and they also kind of knew that it was Apple's last shot. And so a next employee reached out to Apple behind Steve Jobs' back to set up a meeting. And I don't know what happened, whoever that was, but that's a bold move. At this point, Next, you know, it was, it was Steve's company after he got kicked out of Apple in the 80s. They had been building high-end workstation hardware for, like, universities and researchers to use. But it was too expensive and no one really bought it. And so they were out of the hardware game by this point, but they were building OpenStep, which was the newest version of their operating system for their hardware. And it was also a development kit. But what was cool about this, and this will be really important later in the story, it was relatively agnostic when it came to what processor platform it ran on. And so Next was basically building a toolkit for people to build apps across a bunch of different platforms at this point. And they also had this OS that they were developing. Uh, They also had like web objects and some server-side stuff. But a really interesting combination of things and then you add Steve Jobs to the mix, it gets even more interesting. But Next wasn't a particularly successful company. No. I mean, they got in the business to be, you know, to compete with Apple on the high end. You know, they wanted to be a computer company. And by the time this deal comes around, Next has laid off a lot of people. And um, it is not the company it had started out to be. Definitely not. Uh, they were They were not in great shape. Uh, at this point, kind of like how B was, right? Like I get the sense that both of these companies kind of needed to be acquired. And in fact, B computer company didn't last very long after this uh, because they had no money and you need money to have a company. But Apple ends up having this like final meeting in December of 96. Next is invited. B is invited back. Make your final pitches. 
apparently, and it, this depends on who you read and when you read it, uh, Gasset came either unprepared or was a little bit insulted that he had been invited back after they told them no and that he was pitching against jobs. I don't know exactly. That's like, you know, this little gray area there in the history. But basically, uh, whatever his situation was, Apple ended up going up with Next and paying $429 million in cash, so more than the B acquisition would, would have been. That money went to the investors in Next. You know, they owed a lot of people a lot of money. People had uh, ownership stakes in the company. And then uh, Jobs was awarded uh, 1.5 million shares of Apple. Uh, no cash for him. And he was not, you know, he didn't become CEO. In fact, for a while, he was pretty hands-off and then eventually came in as a consultant a few months uh, later when things really kind of started kicking off. Yeah, I always wonder about that. It's like, did, when the acquisition was made, did he look at this as his opportunity to get back into Apple? Or was that like a calling that came later? It, I mean, has has anyone ever documented that? You know, I'm sure that's in some of the biography stuff, uh, probably in particular Becoming Steve Jobs, which I think is the best biography on Jobs. I haven't read that in a while. I think initially he was maybe hesitant, but I think once he was back, uh, he knew that he would be back only if he could have control. And so you saw him make a bunch of moves to get rid of a bunch of the dummies, as he would call them. And he installed a bunch of next people. In fact, in fact, really, it, it, on paper... Apple bought Next, but in reality, Next took over Apple. Yeah, I mean, at the management level and everything else. My my theory on this, with no evidence, is that Steve very much wanted to get back to Apple, but he wanted them, he wanted to play hard to get, because yeah. just like Stephen was saying, um, when he came back, he demanded that the entire board of directors resign. This is, I mean, I do corporate law. I'll tell you, this is really weird that um, you go to say, we're going to hire a new CEO and there's this guy we want to hire, but his condition is that we all quit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, and they did. They they yeah. resigned. They hired him and they resigned. And he set a board of his own choosing. And that's because he had got pushed out by the board the first time and he decided that was not going to happen again. It, it's really kind of a fascinating story. But again, probably not related to today's subject. I think he learned a lot of lessons at Next and came back with those lessons. Um, you know, he was also involved at Pixar by this point. So he had been in a successful company and saw what it what it took. Yeah. But, you know, we had at this point, we have the genesis of Mac OS X with the acquisition of Next Company. This episode of Mac Power Users is brought to you by Text Expander. Work smarter and not harder with Text Expander. It lets you work faster and smarter so you can focus your time on your most important work. Gang, that's not typing repetitive things like your address, uh, common language you need to send to customers, phone numbers. Let Text Expander take care of all of that because with just a few keystrokes, it can give you consistent, accurate, and working efficiently. You can speed through emails by expanding forms with fill-in-the-blank fields using a quick abbreviation. Text Expander's powerful shortcuts and abbreviations to streamline and speed up everything you type means that you can save time. And you can get your message right every time 
by expanding content that corrects your spellings and keeps your language consistent with just a few keystrokes. Show listeners will get 20% off their first year. Tech Expander is one of those things that I cannot use my computer without. I have so many things in there. A new addition is, spoiler alert, we've moved to Zoom for our recording. I have a semicolon Z-O-O-M, and that automatically, wherever I am, types out the Zoom URL I need to send to somebody. It's great. So go to textexpander.com slash podcast to learn more about Text Expander, and MPU listeners will get 20% off their first year. Once again, that's textexpander.com slash podcast. And our thanks to Text Expander from Smile for supporting MPU. So once uh, team jobs and the next team move in and they take over, everything just peaches and cream, right? No, they had they had some some rough times. They had to figure out how to combine the stuff from Next and what was already there for the Macintosh. You know, the hardware, which we're not really talking about today, the hardware was a mess. And so this is where we get things like the iMac and other things to uh, to keep the Mac hardware uh, limping along. But uh, the first stab at this uh, is called Rhapsody. Uh, Rhapsody, in short, would basically use Next OS, OpenStep. They would use that as the core and then they would have two major environments for applications sitting on top of that, and then a new user interface. Uh, so it's and this is nerdy, but it's really important to understand like how badly they missed the mark the first time. They had uh, Blue Box, which was just the the environment name, is basically a virtual machine for existing Mac apps. So your OS nine apps, OS eight apps, System seven apps, they could run in Blue Box. This is before OS 9. But classic Mac OS apps could run in Blue Box. They would run as they always would. You know, no protected memory, no preemptive multitasking. But it was basically a legacy mode to run your old Mac apps, of which there were many, many, many out there. Uh, about about 12,000 Mac applications at this time. And then they would have Yellow Box, which was the modern way to build applications on this new operating system. It would use OpenStep. APIs, you could use Java, but there was nothing in the middle. There was no bridge to get from, you know, the sinking ship of classic Mac OS to take your code base, your application, and to bring it to the the new operating system. There was no way to do that without completely rewriting your application uh, in this weird new language that Next brought in called Objective-C. This included uh, developers like Microsoft and Adobe. You know, these these companies all of all sizes said, no, we're not going to do this. You need to figure out a way for us to run our applications in the new environment, to have access to these new technologies without a full rewrite. And Apple heard them and Apple backed down from this plan. Um, thank God. Yeah. Right? I mean, this would have not, this would not have worked. Um, yeah. And, uh, people made that very clear to Apple. And so I think they, I think they heard that, uh, what is, what is interesting about this too, is this really is the fulfillment of the weird open step dream because say that a Mac developer had rewritten their stuff for yellow box, that, that application could have also run on 
Windows and Linux and other things, but they didn't care about that. All they like, we need our Mac apps to run on the Mac, and you're saying I can't do that. That I'm I'm handcuffed to the to the past unless I fully rewrite, uh, and that just wasn't going to work. Uh, so Rhapsody died a pretty quick death. There were a couple of betas that slipped out. They shipped us a product called Mac OS 10 Server, not to be confused with the server they would later have. Uh, that was basically Rhapsody. I think at that point they thought, well, we have this. We might as well ship it. I don't think they needed to ship it, but it is out there and it's super weird because it's like this weirdo timeline that shouldn't have existed yet. There was this product that that came from it. Yeah, it just seems like such a wrong, I, I guess maybe I have the benefit of hindsight, but it just seems like so wrong for the company too. Um, yeah. That, that how would they even think that was something that would work. I don't know. Uh, I think they thought this is the fastest way we can do this. And to their credit, it would have been, but they would have lost. I mean, I don't think Rhapsody would have saved the Mac. Again, we have hindsight, so it's hard to say. But I think if they had done this, it would have failed big time. Yeah, I agree. But that's how we got to Mac OS ten. That's right. Uh, And so this is where Apple kind of goes back to the drawing board and comes up with what we know as as OS 10. So instead of having this hard cutoff for those 12,000 applications and 40 million users, which I mean, that's a lot of people, the new strategy would include that middle layer, a bridge for those applications to come over to the new system without needing a uh, a full rewrite. Uh amazingly this was introduced the same week as the iMac G3 at two different events. It's, wild to me um but mac os 10 would basically as jobs put it would have two parents it would have the classic mac os full emulation uh known as classic in, in mac os 10 for a while that would remain but the magic really was this technology called carbon and so apple went through all the apis all the all the parts of the system that you need to build an application and they ended up cutting about 2,000 of them. The other 6,000 were rebundled and renamed Carbon. And Apple had this program uh, called the Carbon Dater. And a developer would run their application against this and say, hey, you know what? 90% of your app is fine on the new system. If you tweak this 10%, you can get fully up and running on Mac OS 10 natively. You're not in the penalty box of the classic emulation. And that meant that applications originally written for the classic Mac OS could come over to Mac OS 10 with much of their code base intact and get printed multitasking, protected memory, the new user interface, and feel like a modern app. And then on the other end, they still had all the, you know, what was then called Coco, which we still have today which is yellow box, which you can write an objective C and like rewrite your app. And that's everything we have now. But this carbon bridge was a technically very impressive, but B it is what allowed developers to step over to the new platform without having to do a full rewrite. You'd have to do some, some work. It wasn't for free, but for most developers, it was not that big of a, of a deal. And just remember, a few years later, this is a company that couldn't deliver the goods on Copeland. Yeah. But suddenly, they're making a whole integration layer to move their apps to a totally different operating system. I mean, 
Uh, you just can't understate the impact of jobs and next coming in. Absolutely. And, and, and some of the people who worked on carbon had come from next, but a lot of the people who worked on carbon came from the classic Mac OS software development team because they knew it really well. And they knew that carbon was the only way forward for their technology. And so putting this in place, it's what made all this possible. You know, we think about it as, you know, there's like this weird set of APIs that has been discontinued for a long time now, but it was absolutely critical uh, that they add this to Rhapsody, that they they brand it Mac OS X because the Rhapsody name was poisoned by now. And this carbon technology, carbonizing an app is what made Mac apps viable on Mac OS X, which made Mac OS X itself viable. And, you know, it's kind of funny. I, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but, res, you know, looking forward, this is the template. That's how they got to Intel. That's how they got to Apple Silicon once they figured this out. Yeah, Apple's really good at transitions. You know, we've said that on the show for a long time. This is another one of them. You know, usually we think about processor, but with software as well, they're really good at it. So they had a plan and they were going to call it Mac OS 10. With an X, but it's 10. Yeah, I know. <laughs> people still get confused about that. I mean, anybody who doesn't like listen to podcasts like the Mac Powies or still think that X is Mac OS X. Yeah, Apple's slowly getting rid of it and a bunch of their product names for a reason. Yeah, that's what got us to, what is it, March of 2001. Yeah, yeah. So uh, they they go forward from that announcement. Uh, they ship some betas. Uh, Developer Preview 3 showed Aqua, which is the user interface with the pinstripes and the lickable buttons. Uh, I'm going to have some link in, links in the show notes to John Syracuse's re, uh, review talking about Aqua for the first time. And I found on YouTube the keynote where Jobs announces it. And like, you should just go watch it because it is amazing how much they got right. And even though Big Sur looks really different, it's the, the bones of Aqua are still with us today. It's really amazing how the design has stood up even though the fashion side of the design has changed drastically, obviously we don't have pulsating blue buttons anymore, but yeah. the the structure <laughs> of the design has held up really well. Yeah, and they and they shipped it, you know. We're going to talk in the after show about our initial our initial impressions of it, but I remember distinctly when it came out. But eventually they got it to well, I forget what were the names. I forget they had the code names for the betas as they came out. Yeah, so the public beta, which you could just go buy for thirty bucks, was uh, Kodiak that came out in the fall of two thousand. It was really buggy and slow, but yeah. uh, Cheetah shipped as ten point zero in March of two thousand one for one hundred and twenty nine dollars. And it was also very buggy and slow. Yeah. <laughs> Can that, I say that? <laughs> it, it was. And I think a, a lot of that has to do with the user interface that you're asking a G3 to do a lot of stuff. Um, and it took them a little while for the hardware to catch up with the interface as f- in terms of being able to drive it uh, reliably. But at the same time, it was slow, but it did work. I mean, it came with the classic emulation, so you could run your your Mac OS apps unmodified. It came with Carbon, so developers who had done a little bit of work, their apps would stand up on OS X. And then you had uh, Coco, which was for developers writing in Objective-C. And some of Apple's apps were like that. And over time, that became uh, more and more common to today. It's the only way. 
uh, if you don't count Catalyst. This also kind of goes back to the original Macintosh, which was hardware constrained. I mean, they had good ideas, but the hardware wasn't there yet. Yeah. And very quickly, Apple tried to get the hardware, you know, up to snuff to mm-hmm. to run this stuff. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it was slow and it did crash. It wasn't perfectly stable, but right off the bat, you could tell that I think it was better than classic Mac OS in terms of stability. Maybe not everyone would agree with that, but I, I think on the whole, I think that was probably true. If not in 10.0, definitely by the time 10.1 comes out later in 2001, which I, it was kind of an apology release. It was only 20 bucks uh, and you could pick up the upgrade CD for free in Apple stores and Mac resellers. Like, hey, you bought 10.0 for $130. We know it made your machine really slow. Uh, here's a new version. And 10.1... Uh, Puma was was really all about refinement. It was about making it run faster on the same hardware, uh, dealing with a lot of the rough edges and poor performance. Uh, that was really the goal in 10.1, and it definitely was better. Uh, still not perfect. They still had a long way to go, but they even though they shipped 10.0, they, they kept right on working to get 10.1 out the door very quickly afterwards. Yeah, and th- that, those were the days. Those were the before the iPhone. That was the launch party events at the Apple Store. You'd go, you'd buy, you get a T-shirt. You know, I have a, but I think I have a Jaguar T-shirt in the closet somewhere. Nice, uh, but the yeah, it's just that was fun when they were doing that stuff. Yeah, it really was. I've got some Panther uh, launch stuff, like the dog tags, and and I think I have a leopard T-shirt somewhere. But yeah, those were kind of the early days. You know, it took them several years longer than they expected with that false start of Rhapsody. But by the time 2001 comes around, they have the next gen OS and they're kind of ready to just make it better and better as time goes on, which, uh, as we'll talk about next, they definitely did. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by SaneBox. Stop drowning in email now and set up a SaneBox account today. SaneBox learns what email is important to you and filters out what isn't, saving you hours. And one of the best parts about SaneBox is it's not reliant on one specific system or application. SaneBox works with all kinds of email programs and services. You don't have to have a special app. It's great at email filtering. The Sane Later folder holds the items that aren't quite as important to you, leaving the inbox for just those items that are super important to you. The same black hole allows you to inscribe with one click just by moving a file there. They've got a snooze service there so you can defer email. So if an email comes in on Friday and you don't want to look at it again until Monday, you put it into the Monday box and it disappears until then. And I think my very favorite feature of SaneBox is Sane Reminders. Whenever you send an email out to someone, you can blind copy or carbon copy it to SaneBox.com with a period of time, like one week at SaneBox.com. Then if that person doesn't reply to you in one week, SaneBox lets you know. It's just a great way to stay on top of your email without micromanaging your email. It's a great feature, and I've never seen it from anyone else. SaneBox is more than just filtering, though. You can move attachments to Dropbox or other cloud services. And they have various pricing plans starting as low as $4 a month. Get your 14-day free trial now. Go to SaneBox.com MPU. 
Once again, that's sanebox.com slash MPU, and you get a $25 credit on any plan. Now, I talked to them about that. I wanted to give the Mac Power Users listeners the best available credit, and that's what you're going to get with that $25. There are a remarkable number of MPU listeners that have tried Sanebox and signed up for it. You can immediately see the benefit of this service. If email is a problem for you, Get SaneBox. It allows you to add a bunch of rules and tools to your email without having to change your whole email ecosystem. Once again, that's SaneBox.com slash MPU for that credit. Thank you, SaneBox, for all of your support of the Mac Power users. So, you know, you talked earlier about how, you know, the initial releases needed work, but very quickly Apple put the gas down and it wasn't long before clearly they had, you could tell they were on the right track. So with the next release is 10.2 Jaguar. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about that one. Yeah, this is, um, this is my, my, one of my fun facts about this is this is the first time that release had been actually called by the cat code name. Like nerds knew what Puma was, but Apple just referred to it as 10.1. But anytime you get to 10.2, there's a big furry X on the box that has been rendered by Pixar. Which is fun. I guess Jobs <laughs> just went over to Pixar one afternoon and was like, hey, can you make a box covered in leopard fur or jaguar fur for me? And then, then they did, and it looks awesome. It also is the the first version of Mac OS X to run on a G5, but it would also run on a G3, so it, the hardware is getting better. Jaguar oversaw a lot of that. Uh, it was out in the fall of 2002 and uh, was replaced in the fall of 2003, so uh, pretty, you know, very active year for Apple. This is where... OSN added a lot of stuff that we think about still being in Mac OS, like MPEG-4 support and QuickTime. The address book showed up here. Uh, Bonjour, which is like the networking where you just set up your printer and you don't have to like know its IP address and file sharing all works in the Finder. All that Bonjour stuff uh, came in uh, 10.2. It also came with the the very early days of what was called then universal access, kind of early days of accessibility features in Mac OS X. And I think one that gets overlooked, but important if in the frame of early versions of Mac OS X were slow, it came with a faster graphics called Quartz Extreme, which meant that Apple could use a GPU for rendering stuff and not just the CPU. It's like, you didn't have that before, but it was a different time. Uh, but yeah. they 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 got yeah. that going, and uh, a couple other things like iChat, you know, for instant messaging and handwriting uh, and Inkwell. But this is where like some some features that we think of being in part of the system they start showing up here. Yeah, and at the time it was just like the march of features. Every year they came out with a new version, and there were a bunch of new features added. I mean, I I don't feel like you get that with Mac OS 10 or Mac OS updates today like you did back then, but no. there were major new features added every year. Oh, uh, absolutely. And you know that that continued the next year with Panther 10.3. It started dropping support for machines. Um there were people who found their way around that uh this app called Expost Facto which when I was in college like I had friends who ran it. It's like, oh, I want to run a version of OS 10 my machine doesn't support. And you could you could hack the installer and do all sorts of fun stuff. But 10.3 definitely brought a lot of new features, like you said. Uh, it brought brushed metal. So there's that. 
Okay, let's talk about Brush Metal for Please. a second. What were your thoughts on it? Did you like it? At the time, I thought it was cool, but then I, I thought they overdid it pretty quickly, and that made me sad. Yeah, because I was never a fan of the pinstripes. I thought it I thought it felt a lot more modern. But, you know, again, this is a long time ago. Yeah. Uh, if you haven't seen this, I got a link in the show notes to the Finder window and Panther. It's a lot of brush metal. But what, what was cool about Finder and 10.3 is that it basically borrowed a bunch of good ideas from iTunes. So before this, like your user folder, you had to dig down to it. And here's like, well, let's just put the stuff you want in the sidebar and make it customizable. We're used to that today in Finder, but that wasn't the case uh, for yeah. the entire history of it. And so you could do things like put your favorite things in the sidebar and have live searches. Uh, this is where labels show up. You know, I know uh, a lot of people are, are a fan of that still to this day. This is where they showed up in OS 10, even though classic Mac OS had had them. It took a while for Apple to implement them in 10. Uh, so Finder really got a big update, but then it added a whole bunch of other stuff too. Yeah. A font book was added. File Vault. Now, this is not the File Vault that we love today. This right. was the bad version of File Vault. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, can, I think I can call it that, right? Oh, yeah. Um, it was not good. <laughs> Fast user switching was here, which is great. You know, you click your name in the menu bar and log into another account really quickly. Expose was here. So the first time they really tried like window management beyond just minimizing things to the dock. And uh, Safari shows up. Safari was actually a mid cycle between 10.2 and 10.3, but Safari 1.0 was named the default browser. Like Apple was all in on Safari uh, as of Panther. I didn't run it in the early days, but it was there and, and it was, you know, gaining a lot of attention from Apple in those early days. Yeah. Well, I, I think they, they saw the writing on the wall, and this is kind of a, a version of Apple's idea that, look, we need to control our own destiny. And one thing you must have in order to have a good operating system at, at this time is 2003, kind of as the Internet's starting to take off, is you have to have your own browser that you control. And I, I think they were smart to do that. Absolutely, they they were. And that continues to be a big thing today. Um we got iChat AV, so you get audio and video conferencing stuff, and you get built-in fax support. So if you got a fax machine or or you need to fax something and you don't have one, your Mac can fax it for you. So that's that's cool. That's not there anymore. That's that's gone away in the year since. And then in 2005, we got Tiger, and um, and I, I'll tell you from my experience at the time, I felt like Tiger was the once I started running Tiger, I'm like, okay. Apple is no longer in jeopardy. I mean, even there was a question in my mind throughout the whole period of the, you know, the arrival of Mac OS 10 is like, can they pull it off? I think a lot of Apple fans had this, like this feeling in the back of our head that the company was constantly on the verge of bankruptcy or, you know, windows was so massive at this time, but it was like when tiger shipped, I felt like, wow, this has really come a long way. I mean, to me that, that was the, the the release that really made me feel like I, I don't have to worry about Apple going out of business anymore. Yeah. It's the first one that felt like, okay, this is a real product with a future. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I agree. Um, uh, I, I definitely agree. And it was a, a, a big success six weeks in 
16% of Mac OS 10 users were running it. And remember, this isn't the days where you just download it from the app store, right? You got to go buy a DVD or CD. Go to the store. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, within uh, a year and a half, because Tiger was out for a long time, which we'll talk about in a second, uh, it was running on more than two thirds of Macs. So it really saw a good uptick in adoption. And a lot of it, again, has to do with the features, right? Spotlight's the big one here. I think really good search. Again, Apple framed it as we already had search in iTunes. Let's just bring it everywhere else. And that was, I mean, I remember running Spotlight, you know, once it did its indexing, because that was terribly slow on a spinning hard drive. But once it was done, like I remember like on my PowerBook, like, gosh, I like, I never have to look through files and folders again. And to this day, my primary way of getting around my computer is search. I use Alfred on top of Spotlight, but it changed the way that I and I think a lot of people use their computers where you can just type command space and start typing and you don't have to root around and find her anymore. Yeah, I, I do remember thinking this will be a feature that will get shipped in this version and it'll be good in a year or two mm-hmm. and being surprised that it was good immediately i mean once you get past that first index you're right but yeah they they did it right from the beginning because at the time search and apple mail was horrible and i was thinking that that was my mindset like if they can't get it right with the email how are they going to get it right on the whole hard drive but yeah for whatever i don't know what the technologies they used but um spotlight worked great from day one yeah because they they basically stuffed spotlight into a bunch of different things uh including mail um, yeah. mail, by the way, I just have to bring this up. Um, mail and tigers really ugly. Like it's just so bad looking. I don't know what those buttons are. Thankfully they didn't populate much further, but some of the, by tiger, the UI was pretty messy. You had, oh, I forgot about this. Yeah. It's bad. We had right? to put this in the show notes. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've yeah. got this in, in the notes. You had brush yeah. metal. You had some pinstripey stuff. You had whatever this was, which I think was called unified or is what we kind of called it as the community, but really not, not good looking. Oh yeah. This brings back memories. <laughs> I mean, even just clicking through the, cause this is a link to my aqua screenshot library site, even clicking through th- four images, keychain accesses, brush metal. Then you have ugly mail and then you have mail preferences and that's pinstripes. It's like tiger was a bit of a mess visually. There was a lot of, competing ideas about how things should look well my my feeling on it was i felt like pinstripe looked like something that could have come from microsoft it just didn't feel mac enough to me whereas i felt like brush metal was something you'd never see on a windows computer so that's that was my thinking but you're right it just it got to be overwhelming over the years yeah And, and it was weird too because some of the hardware had pinstripes like around the display it's like why does my menu bar look like the plastic that it sits within? It's very, it's a very different yeah. time. Uh, Tiger also brought dashboard, which was another big deal. I mean, running widgets was, it wasn't a new idea because it was maybe or maybe not ripped off. Um, there's a link in the show notes about that, about that. but uh, dashboard was a big thing and it stuck around till just a few years ago. And you also had um, automator. So this is where, automation becomes a little bit easier on the Mac. You know, we'd had Apple script and we had the terminal, of course, but automator was kind of the first build it yourself with these visual blocks that we still see it today, but like shortcuts is kind of inspired by it too. Not kind of. It is, is inspired. <laughs> is inspired. 
Um, and I, I can't, every time automator comes up, I just wish that they had given it, you know, enough oxygen to become what it could have been. Cause I remember with tiger thinking this is going to go so far. I was an automator from the beginning and I, you know, I, I'm a little sad, but, uh, yeah. Dictionary voiceover QuickTime seven. Remember QuickTime seven, oh, yeah. a, a lot of good stuff in tiger. Um, yeah. I mean, this really was like, there was stuff to do in the OS. And so every release you were going to get these, these big features. And just from the end of this, like system seven, system eight days through the beginning of Mac OS 10, using a Mac was still, it was, if it wasn't creaky, it was buggy, things would crash. And it's like with Tiger, it felt like, oh no, you know, this is the Mac as it's supposed to be. You know, the software is finally caught up to the hardware. I don't know. I I have very fond memories of this release. I think a lot of people do. Uh, I certainly do. And and Tiger also had a really important job is that it was the OS to migrate the Mac from PowerPC to Intel. We talked about that on MPU 557, but one reason Tiger was around so long was that they were doing this. Uh, and as yeah. it turns out, they were also doing the iPhone. Uh, we didn't know that at the time, but uh, Tiger had uh, life on both platforms and, and it, it was the transition OS uh, just like... Big Sur is today, where I'm running Big Sur on my Intel Mac Pro and my M1 laptop. It's the same OS, different platforms, and it's responsible for bridging us from one to the next. Yeah, and it, it like calls back to the carbon days when they were doing these transitions. So I, yeah, Tiger, thumbs up. Yep. Actually, I have thumbs up for most of these releases afterwards. Um, so the next one after that, 10.5 Leopard in October of 2007. Yeah, it's a long time uh, from Tiger's release. And the reason was that uh, Apple was finishing up the uh, the iPhone. Um, and, you know, the iPhone was going to ship in late June 2007. And in April, Apple said, hey, look, Leopard's going to be out in October because we, we're basically all working on the iPhone over here. And we're going to make sure that gets out the door in a good state. And then we'll come back and finish up Leopard. Some people were not happy about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that, that that's that's where the that's what we had the, the walk and shoe gum era for Apple yeah. is. They, I mean, this is the first release where they had been strapped onto a rocket ship called the iPhone, and they're trying to keep their computer company going while the rocket ship is mm-hmm. pulling them farther into orbit. Yeah, Leopard supported both PowerPC and Intel. Uh, it brought new features, but not as many. I think this is kind of the first time we start seeing the feature train slow down a little bit. It brought boot camp support, so you could run Windows on an Intel Mac. It had um, a revised interface. So unlike Tiger, which was just a hot mess, Leopard, everything was more muted. Brush metal, pinstripes were all gone. Everything looked basically the same. You got a very shiny dock. It was very reflective <laughs> and uh, 3D. Yeah. Uh, you got stacks, which is are still around today. Um, but I think, again, the big one, I think, is, is Time Machine, right? That's the, that's the leopard headliner for me. Yeah. I mean, bringing back up to the masses. All you got to do is plug in a drive. Still great. Still nothing easier to this day. Uh, yeah. Honestly. I mean, it, it really was the answer. And, you know, they've, they've iterated on it over the years, but... You know, you get a new Mac and you just plug in a hard drive and you're good. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, how many people in your life that are not geeks have you like gifted them a drive or or just told them to get a drive? You know, almost everybody I know that's the first conversation I have with them when they get a Mac. Oh yeah, it's it's so many people. That used to be my price when I'd go set up a Mac for somebody. I'd say, I'll go set it up, but you have to have an external hard drive when I get there. <laughs> and I like um, that. I'd set up their, their backup. Yeah. Uh, Leopard was also the beginning of Apple closing the door on classic Mac OS. So the classic emulation environment was gone. Carbon was still there, but uh, for a while, Apple had promised that Carbon was going to be 64-bit, meaning it could support more memory and and uh newer processors and basically they said actually uh that's not going to be that carbon is going to be 32 bit only uh, which is why so many apps died with catalina last year or now i guess two years ago because uh, carbon and 32 bit stuff is no longer supported it's only 64 bit and so this was the beginning of the end of that very well thought out bridge we talked about leopard is apple coming off the bridge and saying OS 10, this new way of writing apps, this is the, where we're going and we're not going to support carbon indefinitely. It would stick around for a long time after this, but this was Apple starting to say, hey, look, uh, it's, it's, it's time to move on, gang. Yeah, in, in fact, at this point, there are Mac Power Users episodes. And I think if you go back into the archive deep enough, you'll hear me saying that I was amazed it lasted as long as it did. Yeah. I didn't think carbon would last this long. It gave, they gave them a very long runway. Um, I mean, it was deprecated, I think, in 10.8, um, but stuck around for years to come. So it was a very, very gradual <laughs> transition. But when you have things like Photoshop and Office, like you need those on your platform. And so yeah, in a way, this really wasn't Apple's timetable to set in 2008 you know maybe now apple would be more aggressive with this we'll see how aggressive they are about intel to m1 but at least here in this situation i think it was basically out as out of apple's hands and they said look we're going to start this now we'll get back to you when we know when we're going to end it well i mean you have to distinguish these transitions the first transition we talked about the beginning was from an advocated operating system to Mac OS 10, which they had the carbon bridge. But then at the same time, just a few years later, they did the Intel transition. And I feel like carbon helped that transition as well. So it helped not only a software transition, but also a hardware transition. And I've always felt like that's why they kept it around. Yeah. Cause you could run like PowerPC carbon apps in Rosetta. I mean, it was like yeah. s- <laughs> stacks of old technology, but Apple had to do it because you had to keep the, that software running uh, because uh, this is a different company, a different time. Yeah, and and if you look back, I mean, the the big software vendors at the time were really taking their sweet time about oh. the transition. Oh I yeah, mean, Microsoft Word is the one that I always talk about because it was terrible on Mac OS ten for years. I mean, it was it was just bad. And they uh, now compare that to the Apple Silicon transition. They already have an Apple Silicon version of Microsoft Office Suite. I mean, it's like night and day in terms of how quickly the transition happened. And I'm sure part of that reflects, you know, val- changing values at Microsoft. They view themselves much more of a of a software company than an operating system company now. But I also think that Apple gets a lot of credit because I think the Apple's teams have got much better at these transitions. A hundred percent. The last OS kind of in this 
era. Um, and we're, we're getting to a point where we're going to talk about them in groups because they start speeding up. Um, but that's snow leopard. And that is a lot of people's favorite version of, of Mac OS 10. Very famously, no new features. Uh, That wasn't really true because they did add some features, including exchange support and some under the hood stuff. But snow leopard, we still talk about it today, right? We talk about iOS and Mac OS needing a snow leopard year take a year off from features really just focus on making it better and more stable and faster and smaller. Um, part of this came because Apple dropped power PC support. So this is three years after the Intel transition was complete. So if this holds up three years after the last in, uh, Intel Mac is on sale, we will see Mac OS drop Intel support. I don't know if they're going to do that or not, but it was three years last time. You know, can I just say, I feel like the the whole thing about Snow Leopard is one of the biggest marketing snow jobs ever. The I mean, no new features thing? Yeah, I just think, I mean, I feel like they had no new features because they had done a bunch of under the hood stuff. And somebody sat around in a marketing room and said, well, we don't have any new features, so let's make the no new features the marketing point. Yeah. And I feel like nerds have bought into that. You know, it's like, oh, we need a Snow Leopard year. Well, not really. What you mean by that is you want them to continue to work on under the hood stuff and not spend a lot of time on Chrome. But Snow Leopard was very different than Leopard. You know, <laughs> I don't know. I, I I feel like the whole thing is overrated about people saying that this is the best operating system they ever shipped. You know? Yeah. No, I get it. Um, I remember I, this was the first Mac OS X version I ran the beta of, and the beta was better than Leopard was. I was like, oh. This is actually pretty yeah. good. Um, yeah. But because they cut off PowerPC Max, you know, a bunch of G4, G5 owners weren't super thrilled uh, and they were stuck on Leopard for eternity, but they had to do it at some point and they did it with, uh, they did it with Snow Leopard. But a lot of that under the hood stuff is still really important today. So making Mac OS better at handling multi-core processors, like really important today when we're sitting around with, four, eight, 10, 12, 26 cores in our Macs. Finder was rewritten in Cocoa. So again, like another blow against carbon. The system apps were written in 64-bit. Apple was very slow in its 64-bit support. basically came up from the kernel to frameworks and then the next year to come up to system apps and then eventually developers could write with it. But all that stuff was important. But again, like you said, like in the marketing meeting, what do you pitch, right? You can't, sell a dvd based on hey it's better multi-core processor support so you sell the dvd on this is a year of refinements and get people excited about it and uh people were excited about it except for david apparently i'm just kidding i'm not trying to be cranky it was good it was a good release i just think that there's a lot of good releases since then as well oh yeah i just don't know why everybody just grabs onto this one yeah so uh it also ushered in the mac app store later in its life that that came mid-cycle which of course really changed the game in terms of how Mac software works and how you acquire it. And uh, you can still, of course, go outside the app store, but this was uh, the beginning of that. And people had a lot of fear around that at the time that Apple was going to eventually turn off the ability to run any software you wanted. And while the system has become more secure and in a way it's become more annoying to run stuff outside the Mac app store, that fear really hasn't come true where it's Mac, Mac app store or bust. This episode of MPU is brought to you by DevonThink, the flagship product from Devon Technologies. 
DevonThink is the most professional document and information management application out for the Mac. It's the one place for storing your documents, snippets, and bookmarks, and then working with them. This integrated AI assistant helps you file and search, while the extensive search language with advanced Boolean operators makes it easy to find what you're looking for. DevonThink lets you sync through a bunch of cloud services. It's a really flexible system. Or you can synchronize over your, your local network. if That works better for you, and everything is securely encrypted. It has smart rules and flexible reminders, lets you automate all parts of your workflow and delegate boring, repeating tasks. DevonThink's AppleScript dictionary is one of the largest on macOS. There's no part of the application that can't be automated. You can extend the functionality with your own commands by adding them to the scripts menu, and even templates can have scripts inside of them. And you can set up new documents with data from placeholders or inserted by your own AppleScript. And of course, there's a lot more. There's an updated iOS companion app. It can archive emails. You can use it for scanning. You can even use it to run an embedded web server for sharing your data securely with your team. I use DevonThink to hold all my resources for looking at Apple history. In fact, this very episode, right now that you're listening to, a lot of this data came from my DevonThink library. Currently, I have almost 24,000 individual files or pieces of information in DevonThink. It syncs with my iOS devices. I couldn't do this kind of work without it. You can get 10% off DevonThink 3 or upgrade to it now by going to devontechnologies.com MPU. That's devontechnologies.com MPU for 10% off. Our thanks to Devon Technologies and DevonThink for their support of the show. It's interesting to me that, you know, the, the releases we've talked about thus far are very, they stand out in my mind. You know, a lot of them I remember going to the store to buy the disc or, and, and they were coming, you know, those first couple of years, you remembered every release because they got so much better and so many new features. But honestly, after Snow Leopard, it all does kind of become a blur to me. Because it's about this time they go on the yearly release cycle. There aren't as many new features. And like if you sat me down without a cheat sheet and said, okay, give me each release in order, I'm not sure I could do it. Yeah, it it definitely gets harder to do so. I mean, yeah, the yearly thing, but also like not as many new features. It's not like every year there's a new app on the dock. Like, oh, this has iChat, so it's this, right? It, uh, It was more subtle than that. Lion and Mountain Lion very much go together. Um, and then later on, you would have uh, Yosemite and El Cap and Sierra and High Sierra. Like you got these six releases that are kind of TikTok releases with Mavericks just kind of floating there in the middle. But yeah. uh, Lion and Mountain Lion together really stand out because it was Apple's big shift to bring iOS features, applications, and designs to the Mac. So this is where. In iOS land, there's linen and like green felt and leather everywhere. And that start starts, I'm going to use this word very purposefully, starts infecting the Mac. Like, why yeah. do things look like linen on my Mac? Why does my calendar have leather all over it? Like, this was the lion, mountain lion aesthetic. It didn't last very long. Uh, they bailed out a, of it with uh, with Mavericks. But lion and mountain lion are like very much of their time. It very much is... If there's a new iOS feature, it's got to be on the Mac. And 
you know, things like emoji support and FaceTime and Launchpad, which looks like Springboard and AirDrop and Apple push notifications, like natural scrolling, which was a huge debate in the community for a long time. Which way should we scroll on the Mac? All of that is because they wanted the Mac to look and act more like iOS. And I think yeah. out of these Lion and Mountain Lion are maybe the least liked amongst a lot of the the sort of hardcore Mac users because of that. Oh man, I hated I hated linen from the beginning, you know, where Chrome was I thought was cool. I just never liked the linen look on the Mac. Yeah. I remember before Lion came out, the year before, I was on a panel at Macworld Expo and they used to have panels where you'd be like in a conference room, but they also had panels on the floor where they had all the booths, you know, and open to the public. So it was a big gathering and it was me and Dave Hamilton and a bunch of other podcasters talking about the future of the Mac. And I had predicted, I, I mean, it wasn't a, a, a stretch to think that they're going to take the success of the iPhone and pull that into the Mac. And I called it the iOSification of the Mac. And the, and I said that I thought that they were going to take over the skeuomorphic design and put it into Mac apps. And it's just like to someone who buys an iPhone and then goes buys a Mac, it's going to look very similar. And I vividly remember this because in the back of the room was Sal Segoyan, you know, with his, his cap on, you know, Sal, the guy who made automator for those people in the audience. So he worked inside Apple and, and I remember when I made that statement, he was out there and he looked at me like I just took a turd in the punch bowl, you know, and he turned around and walked away. And I've never asked because Sal and I are friends. I've never talked to him about that, how disgusted he looked. And I was thinking, man, I must have got that really wrong because Sal's just so mad he's leaving. And what happened was I got it right. <laughs> I don't think he was happy with it. Because the next year we got that. We got leather calendars and we got linen. And yeah, yeah I, I, I was just not a fan. I, I felt like the Mac didn't need that stuff. No. Address book on the Mac didn't need to look like an actual book. But for a while it did. And it was terrible. Yeah. If you've never seen this, like go look through the screenshots in the show notes because it is it is wild how some of this stuff looked. Um, yeah. But it wasn't all bad. I mean, we got Mission Control, which kind of combined spaces and expose and dashboard I'll put all that stuff together in a better way the recovery partition technology showed up so you didn't have to necessarily install from a cd every time uh, they did drop rosetta and so there was now no power pc apps anymore so that was a, another you know bit of a hurdle but at this point you know we're now in 2011 2012 so it's been six years also, uh, Retina support shows up. So you could see your linen and beautiful pixels on your 15-inch Retina MacBook Pro that came out in 2012. So not all bad, but a little bit out of step, I think, with the general direction the Mac was going. Yeah, no, I, I would argue that underlying the operating system just got better. I mean, with these releases, a lot of the underlying technologies were better, faster. Uh, they made more sense, except just the wrapper on it. I just did not like the way it looked. Yeah. And and to your point, it did make using a Mac and an iPhone and an iPad easier because in this time we get things like messages and Apple Notes and reminders and AirPlay and Notification Center, like things that we were used to having on our other devices, you could now have on your Mac. And so to be that 
sometimes I think Apple makes up this person who like moves fluidly between an iPhone, iPad and Mac like a dozen times a day. But this was putting those pieces in place. And and now we just kind of come to assume that when there's a cool iOS feature, the Mac will get it. That wasn't assumed before Lion of Mountain Lion, but this was the uh, the time that it sort of became the norm. But also, I think they think that person is an idiot that moves between them. Like, do you really need the leather on the Mac to understand this is your address book? I mean... I don't know. <laughs> yeah. This is also a period of time where the releases of Mac OS were very much tied to features coming out on the iPhone. Oh yeah. Uh, definitely. Uh you know if if uh the iPhone or iPad got something the Mac would get it. Maybe not the same year, but maybe the year after that. You know, think about uh sharing extensions or again we talked about messages and notes and stuff. They wanted things uh to be more seamless the whole continuity idea comes up you know kind of in this era and and in things like mavericks and yosemite and el capitan making it easier to move between them not that a lot of people do but if you do if you are one of those people apple just wanted to to make it uh, as simple as possible and i get that because the iphone was so popular i mean Apple had never had a product like that. I mean, the world had never had a product like the iPhone. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that halo effect that everybody used to talk about was real. You'd buy an iPhone and say, wow, this is a really nice experience. Maybe I should try one of their computers. I just always felt like that's fine. But the reason people liked the iPhone was the way it worked so well. It wasn't because of the design of the interface. And the goal on the Mac should be the same thing. Make it work really well. It doesn't matter if it has leather or not. So anyway, I I think I've beat this dead horse enough. (laughs) And and Apple has returned to the well a little bit. We're jumping ahead in time. But with Big Sur, Big Sur looks a lot like iPad OS and iOS. It doesn't have to. I think they've done a better job this time. It still looks more like Mac OS than iOS, where line and mountain line maybe went too far. Yeah. But you can start to see that coming back a little bit of Apple wanting them to look and work and feel more like each other. Of course, now the difference is you have apps from those platforms running on the Mac, and that was not a thing, you know, uh, eight years ago. <laughs> but also, I would argue the Big Sur definitely does it with more taste. Oh, yeah. And Mac apps still feel like Mac apps where, you know, anyway. The other thing about this is this is when they ran out of cats. They did. Uh, so 1013 was named Mavericks. There was this great joke uh, that they were going to call it Mako a sea lion. This is when Craig Federighi was really rising to power and becoming yeah. very funny on stage. Yeah. Mavericks was a walking back of a lot of those design decisions, but it also modernized a lot more stuff. So there was a lot of stuff under the hood in Mavericks, especially for laptop users to have much better battery life and better um, energy efficiency. Um, and we see iBooks and Maps. They come over from iOS at this point, as is iCloud Keychain. So a, a smaller release, but one that kind of, I think, corrected some of the mistakes of the past two. Yeah. No, I feel like the, they had uh, they'd gone too far. And I think, as uh, Sal's disgust with me um, explained, I think a lot of people inside probably felt the same way. And then you've got these annual releases coming out where the Mac kind of returns to being the Mac again, but gets, you know, tighter and some new features and, um, and starts to look again more like a Mac. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
we get Yosemite, which brings that new flatter design, which is what we had up until Big Sur. It gets the beginning of dark mode. Uh, but this is also where a lot of Mac OS apps get replaced with new versions that work better with iOS. So you get yeah. photos instead of iPhoto and in LCAP, you get the new notes application, which is still fantastic to this day. And they've continued to work on it. But before this notes was a bit of a joke on the Mac and yeah, and it turned notes from like something you did on your iPhone and you did on the Mac. If you had to, to like, I could use this full time. And a lot of people do uh, really a, a big jump up in usability there. There's another theme going on in my mind about this period that has continued through today is just underlying security improvements to the Mac operating system and locking things down. You know, back when we used to go to WWDC, yeah, I would bump into Apple people who would tell me like all the stuff they were doing, like with Apple Mail had a plugin architecture that was really leaky and they fixed that. And you know, Safari has a whole new extension system. And like Apple has over the last several years, every year, been just dialing down the security on the operating system. And that's something that often doesn't even make it into the press release, but you can see that kind of starting and gaining momentum in these years. A hundred percent. Things like system integrity protection and APFS, like some of that real low level underlying stuff starts showing up kind of in this era. Uh, Also, you get things like kernel extensions needing explicit permission to run. and Finally, the writing on the wall in High Sierra about 32-bit apps going away. So there's a lot of modernization taking place in this era. And at the same time, they are continuing to bring iOS stuff. So we get Siri and Auto Unlock with the Apple Watch and iCloud Drive and Universal Clipboard. All that sort of stuff also starts showing up. You know, okay, we've got the, the core apps. You know, Apple's core apps by this point are on both platforms. And now... 2015, 2016, 2017, Apple is bringing more of the the glue that holds those apps and services together across all their platforms. Yeah, and this is when they're getting good at cloud. You know, I mean, for so long they were horrible at it. We didn't even discuss the mobile me launch. Uh, we 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 passed that bit of history, but um, by this time. Apple has got pretty good chops at iCloud and they're able to tie a lot of stuff together. And uh, to that point you were saying about the underlying low-level uh, low stuff, in addition to security, just kind of a core, you know, the APFS and the file system, I would argue that that was the lesson they learned from the beginning of Mac OS X, where they had let the operating system linger and technologically fall behind, which put them really in a bad spot. It seems like they were taking affirmative steps during this era to make sure that didn't happen again. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by the IntraZone from Microsoft SharePoint. It's your bi-weekly conversation and interview podcast about SharePoint, OneDrive, and related tech within Microsoft 365. I love listening to podcasts, and I'm always looking for good ones to sign up for. If you use Microsoft products, you should check out the IntraZone by Microsoft SharePoint. It's a bi-weekly podcast with conversations and interviews on how Microsoft SharePoint, OneDrive, and related tech can work for you. You'll hear from guest experts behind the scenes and out in the field, so you can see how SharePoint fits into your everyday work life. 
to easily share and manage content, knowledge, and applications. Each show covers a bunch of segments like news and announcements, a focused topic of the week, guest perspectives, facts of the week, and upcoming events. And the topics for each show are really interesting. Previous episodes have covered the gamut of the Office products in 365, like migration to the cloud, AI and machine learning, API and teamwork, SharePoint, pages and lists. There's just a bunch of things they've covered here. The most recent episode is about fantasy productivity and adopting Microsoft Teams. The show focuses on building employee adoption and bringing them into these new technologies. I can tell you that working with paralegals and secretaries in the past, that is where the battle is won and lost. And this episode talks about that. The hosts cover the best practices and insights on how Microsoft Teams can help you be successful. So go ahead and listen to it now. Just search for the Intra Zone wherever you get your podcast. That's I N T R A Z O N E, or just click the link in the show notes to go check it out. Our thanks to the Intra Zone by Microsoft SharePoint for their support of the Mac Power users and all of Relay FM. So now I think we're kind of in kind of in the current age, you know, at this point, Mac OS is a very mature operating system. They've, uh, they've dropped the OS 10, uh, model, you know, name and cat names and all that stuff. And we have Mojave, Catalina and Big Sur, which I, I kind of think Mojave and Catalina are kind of two sides of a coin and we'll see where, what comes after Big Sur. But, we see the race to now what we know is the race to Apple Silicon really taking place in these OSs. So left and right, Apple is shedding old technology, OpenGL and OpenCL, these old ways of doing computing tasks get thrown overboard. 32-bit support in Catalina, which we talked about on, on MPU at great length, uh, that's removed a bunch of the social media integration is removed from all of Apple's platforms, you know, where you could like tweet from the sidebar and stuff, all that's gone. Yeah. And built in Facebook integration, yeah. all that. Yeah. In hindsight, that, that stuff was a seems thing. wild. <laughs> yeah, that was a thing. Yes. But it, it is a, uh, a smoothing out and a simplifying of, of what's underneath the OS. Uh, there was a slide, I think it was at WWC 2020. And Craig Federighi's talking about, you know, iOS came from Mac OS 10, you know, way back in the day, 2007. But since then, they've grown apart. And over the last several years, we've, we being Apple, have worked on reunifying them. And so the media layer, the networking layer, all this stuff is the same now between Mac OS and iOS. And most of that stuff, if they do it right, users will never know but it makes life better for developers and it makes things like Mac catalyst where you can bring an iPad app over to an Intel Mac and make it run pretty well. And you can do the same one on the M one Mac or even have your iOS app run natively directly on an M one Mac. All of that's made possible by the, the changes they've been making the last several years. Yeah. And, and it's also easier for Apple. I mean, you shouldn't have to make a Bluetooth stack for the Mac and then a different Bluetooth stack for the iPhone. Um, with this foundational system that they've built, I mean, in theory, if they can bring these together, 
they can have one Bluetooth stack that works really well on both platforms. That's right. And, and I think we are seeing some of that now with like things like voice control and game controller support and like sidecar things that really are deeply integrated that show up on both platforms or even where the platforms work together. I think Apple's work to unify them under the hood is, is paying off. Yeah. And it's, it's really quite a journey we've been on with Mac OS 10. When you think about where it started, a company that was on the verge of failure to now a company that's on top of the world. Yeah. It's amazing. I mean, the next acquisition, like, Find me an tech acquisition that has been more meaningful than that ever. I mean, seriously, I don't think there is one because it has given Apple the technology it needs to do all of these other things. You know, could, would we have gotten the iPhone had they bought B company? Like maybe, but I would argue probably not. Um, yeah. Now some of that's hard to untangle Steve jobs from like the technology. Yeah. But he was part of the deal. And so I think having all of that history unfold the way it has out of that acquisition and seeing how Mac OS ten started life as it's going to be next step with some weird classic Mac apps glued to the side of it to being carbonized and walking through this history. They've done such an amazing job at evolving it. Even with the few missteps that they've had, it's been a pretty solid two years of release or two decades of releases. Yeah. I mean, going back to the beginning, you know, I used to read the magazines, you know, and to me it was obvious that they needed to buy B and when they didn't, I thought they were done for, uh, it never occurred to me that next would become part of Apple yeah. to tell you the truth. But the, um, but now looking back, I think if they had purchased B, they probably wouldn't exist anymore. You and I would not be on these microphones right now. Mm-mm. You know I mean? It's just, it's just, such a weird twist. It, it's so true with so many companies where um, when you hear the history of how things happened and there were so many places where a right turn or a left turn could have happened and, you know, they went maybe the wrong way and it turned out to be the right thing. I, I, I guess I'd argue that's true for our own lives as well. I was just reading the Ed Catmull book about Pixar and that was the same thing. They were trying to sell the company. At one point they thought they were going to sell it to, I think it was like IBM or some company that wanted them for the computers. Yeah. And if that had happened, they, it did, it, it fell through and everybody was sad about it. Cause they thought that was the big payoff. But if it, that happened, we'd never have, you know, buzzy and wood, <laughs> Woody, you know I mean? You know, it's just like, just such a weird twist that these companies go through. It really is. And I think, I think knowing this stuff is important. I'm not saying everyone's got to be a computer historian. Like, please don't, because then I don't have a, niche anymore but um i i do think that understanding that every decision apple makes isn't final and that they do walk things back actually pretty often or they're they they are actually really accepting of the idea of hey this is popular let's change it anyways like just because something is working doesn't mean it's always going to be that way and just because something isn't working it doesn't mean it'll be that way forever either. And so if there are things in Big Sur that are weird visually, or there's a big question about is touch coming, like all of those things, like we can filter some of that through where they've been and understand that I th- I really do think, and it's so clear when you put it on a Google Doc like this, Apple is playing a long game with this stuff. 
right? Like yeah. really you can see the move to all 64 bit stuff when they killed carbon 64 and you can see the move to Apple Silicon years before it happened in hindsight. And so it's not like Apple is bumbling around every spring saying, Oh my gosh, we have a Mac OS release in the fall. What are we going to put in it? They know yeah. what they're putting in it for years to come. And now I think the way Apple is structured, being able to share stuff more between iOS and Mac OS technology, feature application, whatever layer you pick. I think that's only good for the Mac because it shows that Apple continues to invest in the Mac and into Mac OS. Look, if the Mac wasn't changing, then I'd be worried, but because it is changing, I'm hopeful for its future. Yeah. And really, you know, we talk so often about the hardware and how Apple's hardware is such a driver with the company. I think it makes sales happen. It's one of the things they're truly amazing at, but um, the software is the foundation of this three-story building or 20-story building at this point. And this Mac OS 10 over those last 20 years has been the driver of all of their success. Everything from that little thing on your wrist to the, you know, the big Mac Pro in Steven's office has a similar core software foundation. Yeah, it's really amazing. And it's it's where you see other tech companies struggle. Right, you see Microsoft, they weren't able to succeed in mobile. And I think any future mobile efforts that they do will be Android based and not Windows based for the most part. You see Android itself, you see Google who manages it, you see them struggling to get it beyond the phone, right? It's not on the tablet really. Android Wear is pretty much a joke. Uh, they have Chrome OS, which isn't Android, but is related somehow. It's all very confusing. Apple's really the only company who's been able to take a core software platform and spread it out over a bunch of different device types. And some of those end up being better than others, right? Like tvOS has issues and AudioOS on the home pods is weird. And like there, there, there are strengths and weaknesses, but Apple's the only company who's successful at it at all. And that's really impressive. Yeah, I would argue that the foundation of the whole Apple ecosystem is very good. And when we see problems, it's not with the foundation, it's with, you know, how did they add that particular room onto the building or how did they decorate that room? Yeah. In some cases, but the um I feel like what they have is is which nobody else has is this remarkable foundational software system combined with a remarkable foundational silicon system where they build their own chips and you know even though they've had this amazing run i don't think they've peaked yet because even just in the last year we've seen them finally able to combine those two assets the silicon and the software to the computer platform i mean where is this going next i don't know but it's going to be fun i'm I, i'm truly excited and i i don't think the mac's going any way going anywhere anytime soon so even though we've made this long love letter to Mac OS X, we still reserve the right to complain about the software because sometimes the rooms they build on that foundation aren't so great. And yeah. uh, we'll continue to talk about that as we go into the future. But I'm really glad we took a minute here to stop and just appreciate what they've done with Mac OS X over the last 20 years. Gets a thumbs up from me. Yeah. And, and you know, the other thing to think about is we talk about Apple as an it 
when it's really a they. Yeah. You know, you meet the people that work there and they all work very hard. And the whole system is so complex now with multiple platforms and all this stuff they've got to make work together. And throughout this 20 years, we've had the rise of the internet. We've had the rise of mobile platforms and that stuff just didn't magically work across. It took a lot of work and effort by a lot of people at Apple. So if you're listening, thanks. All right. We're the Mac power users. Thank you to our sponsors today. Smile, same box, Devin think and Microsoft. Uh, I'd like to take a minute and tell people about another show here on Relay FM they may enjoy, and that is Roboism. It's a podcast by our friends Alex Cox and Kathy Campbell, and they explore how things like artificial intelligence, machine learning, and digital assistance affect our culture. They explore the humanity behind the bots and uh, really talk about how quickly this stuff is becoming part of our everyday lives. It's It's a fascinating show. I really enjoy it. Check it out at relay.fm slash roboism or search roboism wherever you get your shows. And Kathy and Alex are just so fun. They're great. It's just, they make it fun. So it's it, they really do a good job with it. Uh, we are the Mac Power Users. You can find us over at relay.fm slash MPU. You can join the discussion at the forums at talk.macpowerusers.com. And we'll see you next week. <laughs>